Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 190, being recorded on Monday, September 30th, 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Hey, Jason, do you know what kind of show we are going to do today? Um, I'm guessing a deep dive? <laughs> Jason and Scott Show Deep Dive. That's right. We are going to do a deep dive into everyone's favorite topic. Well, at least mine. Marketplaces. I sort of assumed that you assumed whatever your favorites were were everyone else's favorites. Of course. Yeah. And uh, so we've done deep dives on Amazon. Um, we've done a couple other topics and marketplaces come up a lot. Uh, and I thought this was a good time to talk about marketplaces because there's actually a lot of innovation going on in marketplaces and a lot of changes. Um, and then um, the, we're actually here together and I'm speaking on uh, at a B2B show tomorrow called B2B Next. And I'm talking about marketplaces and how that impacts B2B folks. But it should be said that you probably created a bunch of fascinating unique content just for the podcast and you might reuse it but you're not just giving us the the oh no this is totally custom for our listeners nice well i am uh you of course are the marketplace guru uh but so i am super excited to hear your latest updated take on how marketplaces are doing and where they're going so uh take it away scott yeah yeah so the the first thing i want to do is just put down a little background so we're all on the same page. And the number one question that comes up is, what is a marketplace? Um, And I think everyone out there has their own definition. I have a pretty broad definition of marketplaces um, because then I think that that helps us kind of talk about the different flavors and, you know, some of the pros and cons of those flavors. Some people have a really tight uh, definition of marketplace. So a lot of times it's funny you get into these late night uh, over beer discussions around, well, is that a marketplace or not? So, so for me, simply a, a marketplace. How many people in the world get into a late night beer conversation <laughs> you'd, about? You'd be surprised. Yeah. yeah. Especially at the p- people you and I hang out with. <laughs> yeah. I can, I can I imagine at the Channel Advisor conferences that happens a lot. But yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, there's actually probably more discussion around what's not a marketplace okay. than what is. But anyway, um, so my my kind of loose definition of a marketplace is a venue where buyers and sellers come together to meet and buy stuff. Um, uh, the meat thing is just kind of part of the fun of it all. Um, but you know, it's really a, a a way for buyers and sellers to meet each other, transact, uh, and and you know have an economic kind of exchange. Um, does that fit your definition? We'll talk as we go into different types of marketplaces so we can kind of talk about, you know, the different flavors within that realm. Yeah. No, I don't. That's not a controversial definition to me. I guess the nuance, buyers and sellers come together to buy stuff. Like, I probably would say buy stuff from each other. Like, to me, that's the. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. To exchange. Um, so, what you know, what what's interesting is when you look at the data out there, uh, the the trend is marketplaces are growing faster. So marketplaces, uh, you know, according to Gartner, are growing 23% year over year in the U.S. versus kind of 15% of e- for e-commerce. Now they're part of that 15%, so it's actually probably like 
12% or 10% minus marketplaces. Uh, the number of marketplaces is exploding. Um, if you look at markets like China, over there, over 90% of transactions are on a marketplace. So, you know, here in the U.S., we're at something like 55, 60%. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of people would, would predict that at some point we may actually get, because marketplaces are growing so fast and there's so many new ones popping up, maybe we'll look more like China down the road. So, so that begs the question, why are these marketplaces so popular? Uh, and uh, I kind of look at five areas where marketplaces add value. Uh, in in today's world, uh, and this kind of layers in with changing consumer behavior. You know, the consumers changed more in the last ten years than the last hundred. So uh, consumers love convenience. Uh, one of my favorite Jeff Bezosisms is people ask him, you know, I'm starting a company. What should I What should I bet on? And his recommendation is bet on things that won't change. So instead of picking something that's like the hot new thing, bet on something that's not going to change. And this is why consumers like marketplaces because they bring elements that that you know people are just going to love more of down the road. So convenience, uh, no one you know people value their time more and more. So convenience is a good one. Selection. So if you're going to go uh, to a venue, be it a physical location or a website or an app or whatnot, uh, you know the more you have to buy from, assuming you can navigate it, the better off. Um, people love value. So in in addition to convenience, people always love to save money. Um, and then the the those are pretty tangible, and we can measure them. The ones that are a little bit harder to measure are trust. So uh, a lot of the value provided by marketplaces is giving the buyer and seller uh, this kind of trust umbrella to to make sure that if something goes wrong in the transaction, it can be unwound. Uh, and then um, you know another thing that's really helped the surge of marketplaces is the increase of mobile traffic. So uh, a lot of the mobile places we'll talk about have uh, elements that that give mobile kind of the tie in with the phone. Um, that's obviously helped Amazon and and eBay. So when you when you're when you're when you're out and about, the more products in your hand, the better off. So mobile has been another area that's really caused a surge here. Um, and then the creation of a lot of the new marketplaces can be put back to, to the mobile, the surge of mobile. Um, and then the last one, uh, the last trend uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about, and, and we've had Casey on the show, is the, this bifurcation, this this value-oriented consumer versus the convenience-oriented consumer. And one of the things that, that I think a lot of, people I talk to um, in the industry that don't get is you, you know, everyone is like, okay, convenience, I get it. But then there's like this addictive element of convenience. So, um, you know, you and I are big Starbucks users. So once you've used the mobile app functionality of Starbucks, then the next time you get in that Starbucks line, the even though I happily waited there for years before the mobile app came out, uh, once you, once you get back in that line, it just feels like it's taking ten times longer than than it should. Um, so, for example, I checked into my hotel here. The lock didn't work. Uh, they sent for someone to come. They didn't come in five or ten minutes. It felt like an eternity. So I just went. It was easier to go get a new room than than to you know have that other experience. So, so people are addicted to zero friction and decreasing friction, and that's going to be a theme that you'll see when we talk not only about why are marketplaces so popular, but but why are what are the next wave of marketplaces? Yeah, no, I totally buy that. So, the, like the focus on these sort of um, evergreen benefits. Yeah. 
Yep. Um, so those are the benefits that marketplaces deliver. Um, a lot of people are familiar with this kind of Amazon flywheel. I was one of the first people to use it. Now it's kind of overdone, but you know, it, it shows this is one of the, the reasons um, marketplaces are growing so rapidly is you have this, this virtuous cycle. A lot of people call it network effects where, uh, you know, you, um, the, the flywheel gets started off. Let's use selection as the anchor point. So consumers love selection. Um, that brings more consumers in. Um, that means more sellers come to your platform because they're going after the buyers. Uh, and that brings more selection. Those So that's one leg of the flywheel. And then the other leg is once you get enough selection, you start to have overlapping selection. Now you have competition. Prices go down. Um, so that's kind of this classic flywheel that's built on these consumer preferences that, that are causing marketplaces to grow faster than individual consumer things. Cool. So, um, you know, if you're, most of our listeners are kind of what I would classify as retailers or brands, um, all, all sizes, why should you care? Um, you know, Number one, it's it's kind of the largest segment of e-commerce. It's growing. Um, and what we want to do on, on this one is actually kind of turn your head sideways a little bit and, and talk about some of these new models. And then I think that will help you think even most retailers have already kind of crossed the chasm of thinking about should I sell on a marketplace or not. Uh, there's a couple of new ways to think about marketplaces I want to introduce here that we'll talk about. So uh, – Let's talk about the the types. Uh, first of all, let's uh, let's introduce a couple terms. So um, when we talk about marketplaces, uh, one of the things we talk about is we use this slang one p three p. A third party marketplace is, is a marketplace like eBay, where just sellers are are there, uh, and there's only sellers um, you know involved. Um, a first party uh, transaction is where is a traditional retail transaction. So Amazon's one of those marketplaces that's kind of unique in that you have first party, meaning Amazon is the party, and third party, meaning third other sellers. Um, so we we tend to use uh, when we talk about marketplaces as an industry, we tend to use this one p three p kind of language. Um, if you're specific to Amazon, a lot of people within just the Amazon silo, Amazon has two platforms: uh, Vendor Central and Seller Central. So Vendor Central is the one p platform. Platform. So if you're going to sell on Amazon, you use that. Um, and then the 3P platform is Vendor Central. Those things are merging um, as, as a popular strategy has become to do both, which is even kind of more mind-bending. But um, so, so those are just some vernaculars to make sure everyone understands because we'll start to use those. Um, uh, another common language uh, is GMV, gross merchandise value or volume, depending on who you talk to. Um, and what you're capturing there is uh, just like the payments world, you have kind of two measurements. You have revenue, but it's a derivative of the transactional value going through the system. Um, in the payments world, we use TPV a lot of times. Is that kind of a transaction processing volume? Um, and then GMV is the value of the goods going through the marketplace. And then the formula is the most mar- marketplaces have a um, a commission, a take rate. Um, uh, there's a lot of different names for it. I, I prefer take rate. Um, the fees they charge for transacting on their platform, um, their revenue is is essentially GMV times take rate equals the revenue of the marketplace. So those are a bunch of terms I just wanted to lay out there. Uh, did I miss any? Uh, I think those are the big ones. A question I often get – um, and I'm, I'm curious what your answer is, is what happened to 2P? Um, yeah, so some people call dropship 2P. <laughs> so um, so that would be second party. Yeah, so you know, if you want to kind of stretch it, you can you can kind of say a dropship relationship is, is kind of a 2P kind of a thing. Yeah, I just like to say it's it's not a, it's not a sequence. It's 
we're talking about first party things and third party things, not counting yeah. things. Yeah, and there's no fourth party stuff. There could Yet. be. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Um, so uh, the types of products, uh, the types of marketplaces. So, uh, so you know, I, I just mentioned. Uh, so eBay is a pure third party marketplace. Uh, a lot of people are familiar with some of the Chinese marketplaces like Tmall and Taobao. Those are all pure third party. Um, and then you have, uh, you know, Amazon introduced this idea of what I would call a hybrid marketplace. So you have some first party, some third party. All the other retailer type marketplaces are like that. So Walmart, Sears, etc. They would be this hybrid kind of a thing. Um, there's uh, um, if if you're on a marketplace and you can't tell, you know it's a marketplace item, but you can't tell who the seller is. I call that a dropship marketplace. Um, you know, there's probably some other way to, to brand it where the seller is masked. So you're essentially, you know, you're buying from this these kind of sellers back there, but they're not identified in their own way. That's how Overstock works, for example, uh, in a couple of the new marketplaces we'll talk about. One of the so so all of the stuff I just described are what um, we call two sided marketplaces. So there's a buyer and a seller. One of the interesting things in the last five years, and this is kind of probably part of the advent of, of the rise of the smartphone in the mobile world, is three sided marketplaces. So you add this third side. Um, a classic example here is the food delivery companies. So you have the buyer who is the hungry consumer, uh, like you and I right now. It's around dinner time, um, and then the seller is typically a restaurant. Uh, it may actually be a commercial kitchen is kind of coming up as another thing. So that's two sides of the marketplace. But uh, the two of us, unless we're going to go pick up the food, um, the two of us can't transact until we have that third side, which is typically the delivery marketplace. So um, a lot of this was born from realizing um, with the ride-sharing apps, Uber, Lyft being the big ones, uh, and then Didi in the um, uh, in China. Is that how you say it? Didi, I think? I think yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, Didi. Uh, Didi Chiang or something. Um, anyway, um, so that created this uh, this kind of ability to say, hey, there's there's a fair number of gig workers out there that are willing to move something from point A to point B. Let's plug them into this marketplace, and now we've got a three-sided marketplace. Um, that's one example. You're now seeing – um, obviously, Uber Eats kind of participates that in themselves, um, but now you're seeing furniture delivery, uh, all kinds of marketplaces now that are, are on this three-sided. So the, the third leg that most of you that are familiar with product marketplaces is new is the, the middle infrastructure logistics kind of marketplace that gets plugged in on, on that side. And is um, I can imagine that's a little bit of a gray area, like how much value that that uh, middleman provides sort of designates whether it's a two-party or third-party market. Like, because you, you could look at Amazon and say, uh, like, even on their third-party sales, when they're doing fulfillment by Amazon and adding all, all this value to the sale, that that could be a, three, uh, a, a three-sided marketplace. Yeah, to get super technical, I kind of think if, if, if the buyer-seller is providing the logistics, it's a two-sided marketplace. But um, an example where it would be a three-sided marketplace is Amazon does have Flex, which is a driver marketplace. Yeah. So, so if your order came through Flex, I would argue that's a three-sided marketplace. But if Amazon was employing the drivers, now um, you know Amazon does have this whole delivery program, which is kind of essentially a 1099. So yeah, so so yeah, I think increasingly more and more of it is three-sided. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and these things blur over time. Um. So. That's kind of where we are, uh, and that's the history. So, so if you kind of look at the size out there, 
Um, the biggest uh, marketplace operator, and, and I'll put a little asterisk here because a lot of these China Chinese companies, the when they report these GMV numbers, they're they're uh, they're not gap accounting. There's a lot of craziness that goes on in the China market around um, did a transaction really happen or not. Um, and there's, there's there can be a bigger disconnect between um, the GMV and the actual revenue of the company. So, for example, um, Alibaba has a marketplace called uh, Taobao, where and and then Alibaba itself, the B two B marketplace, where really buyers and sellers meet, and it's more of an ad platform. And then you know they make some assumptions and say that's the GMV. They're not actually collecting a a, a rake or a take rate um, from that marketplace. Um, so those are, those GMV numbers a lot of times can be inflated. Um, but if you look at them, I think actually just recently Taobao are, are um, uh, what's the one that owns Weibo, Tencent. Uh, so, so Tencent, Alibaba, and JD, depending on you know, kind of which data you look at and believe, they're they're the largest ones uh, out there, um, and that's because you know the Chinese e-commerce market's already bigger than the U.S. and then ninety percent of its marketplaces, and and you know there's 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 this kind of race they all have to put out bigger and bigger GMV numbers. It's hard to tell how much of that's true. Yeah, I sometimes think of it. The analogy is like a Craigslist, um, where like. Craigslist probably classified ads like facilitated a lot of sales, but Craigslist wouldn't know exactly how much sales they they fulfilled. So you could imagine them reporting some estimate of how much sales were generated that may or may not be perfectly accurate. Yeah, and what they do is just the way you and I, if we were kind of napkin diagramming this, we would say, well, you know, we had this many. What you do know is traffic numbers, right? Yeah. So we had this many listings and this many buyers come through. Let's assume a conversion rate of, you know, X percent, um, you know, somewhere between five and ten, probably, uh, and then an average order value of seventy-five bucks, and then boom, you know, Craigslist does fifty billion dollars a year, kind of thing. Um, so, so that, you know. Those numbers you have to take with a grain of salt. Um, then, as we as we go down a level, um, Tmall, uh, on, on, which is another part of the Alibaba, that one is actually you know you're required to use Alipay and, and everything, and it has a take rate. So there, you can see that you know uh, it's relatively large, and, and even just Tmall itself is effectively two Amazons and an eBay. Um, so it's huge. So you know that's kind of the scale we're talking about here. So those are the bigger marketplaces in the China area. Um, then if you come down to the U.S., uh, Amazon has grown to be larger than than eBay, uh, kind of north of $100 uh, uh, billion, And then you have eBay at about $90 billion. Um, And then you come down and, and you have a bunch of smaller marketplaces. Um, so, uh, you know, again, you add all this up and it's about 50 to 60 percent of transactions in the U.S. are going through um, by, by GMV dollars, transaction dollar amount are going through marketplaces. So – so definitely a big opportunity um, for brands to consider and, and, and think about uh, as well as retailers. So let's talk about some of the new trends in marketplaces. So uh, some of the new marketplaces that have hit the scenes. So Target Plus, uh, I think it's one of the biggest ones that's been announced in the last year uh, that hasn't gotten a lot of PR. Uh, so, um, you know, full full disclosure, um, so I guess I should have said this at the top, but I started a company in 2001 called Channel Advisor. Um, uh, uh, we went public in 2013. Uh, 2015, I moved from CEO to uh, executive chairman. I'm still chairman of the board there, um, but I'm not involved in the day-to-day. Um, but, I, you know, we're, we're one of their launch partners at Target Plus, and that's been uh, a big, you know, from what I understand, uh, that's been really successful for those sellers on there. Now, a lot of times when when folks 
um, get into the world of marketplaces, um, they they rightly do so cautiously, and I think targets in that camp where I think it's an invitation only type of a marketplace. But um, from what I hear, it's doing pretty well. Uh, the and then one of their their interesting innovations is you know they're they're using that store footprint. When we have conversations with retailers about launching a marketplace, one of the big concerns is. Uh, you know, so someone buys a pair of sneakers from Jason's sneaker shop and they try to return them to the Target store. You know, what are, what the heck is the sales associate going to do? Um, Target took a lot of care with their marketplace to to really kind of tie that whole experience together. And, and my understanding is it works really well where you could buy anything on the marketplace and return it in the store on your next Target run. So that's kind of a neat, neat kind of um, differentiator they have there. Um uh, Walmart obviously uh, has had kind of a ups and downs with with marketplaces. So uh, they had their own marketplace, and then they acquired Jet. Mark Laurie, who came along with that acquisition, is a big um, believer in marketplaces. You know, he was at Amazon for a long time. He started uh, Quidzy, which didn't operate a marketplace but sold, was very aggressive selling on marketplaces and leveraging them. Um, and we mentioned you mentioned on a recent news show that that they're kind of doubling back down on marketplaces at Walmart. Um, you, uh, you pointed out two other new marketplaces that you wanted to highlight. Yep. Um, so uh, Simon malls has launched a marketplace and a pursuit that make is a head scratcher, but then you realize, uh, Simon has traffic that come to, to their own website and they, they've, they're trying to drive traffic to their own website and they want to be able to sell all the, the goods that their tenants in their mall would operate. Right. And so, what what's the solution for having a you know a, a website owned by Simon that can sell goods from all these different tenants from their brick and mortar properties? It's to essentially host a marketplace where all those tenants can sell their goods to the traffic that comes to Simon Mall. So it, they've kind of created a digital version of their their physical malls. Um, I know, and this was interesting to me because uh, Urban Outfitters is sort of a vertically integrated uh, set of brands that mostly sell their own stuff. Um, and they actually, uh, the last year, launched a marketplace and sort of expanded um, their assortment, which is interesting because I don't think they're, they were a big wholesaler outside of the marketplace. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, another trend within marketplaces is to go really vertical. So, you know, if you're a buyer of a certain category, the generic experience you get from an Amazon or an eBay or a Target or Walmart um, is, you know, maybe you have some filters by size or something like that. Um, but let's say I'm a, a comic book collector and I really care about, you know, is this graded by a commercial grading company and what is that grade and, you know, what series is this thing? I may be, if I go to eBay looking for that item, I may be, you know, kind of going through 5,000 listings to kind of, you know, try to narrow it. And, and I, maybe even then I can't really get my handle on if it's really kind of what I'm looking for. So you're seeing um, this kind of explosion of what I would call hyper-vertical um, experiences for folks. Um, one that's kind of a really interesting one is house. So this is in the, in the um, uh, home, home, home improvement category. Um, house started out as this really cool way. Uh, it's a husband and wife team where, uh, I think they did was it a kitchen remodel. I think they they did they remodeled part of their house. And they realized uh, that there was no tools for really kind of visualizing it and, and putting together the whole project. Um, so uh, you know, being I think one of them or they're both engineers. They they said 
there's a need here. So I think they kind of, you know, uh, necessity was the mother of invention. They created this tool. Um, and then for a long time, it was just that. And then what they realized is if you go through the steps of saying, all right, I want a, a new bedroom um, and here's the drapes and the bedding and the mattress and all that stuff, and you could print a shopping list, why not go that last kind of step and say, hey, here's a little marketplace of, you know, now you're at the bed choice selection. Now you can see a marketplace of beds. You can see a marketplace of um, wall coverings, whatever it is. Um, so that's a really interesting one where, you know, you, would, you wouldn't you would kind of think of a marketplace being plugged in that way, but it, they're, um, you know, evidently, I've actually seen them on the IPO watch list recently that this the GMV from the marketplace component is, is by far the largest part of what they do and, and kind of, the you know that that tail is wagging the dog now, where the the remodeling tool has become just a driver for sales into the marketplace. Um, one of our our uh, favorite guests and listeners, Jason Del Rey, is uh, really into the sneaker area. They're they're called sneakerheads. So there is a huge. Uh, I don't even know how to size this. Uh, what's what's also funny about the internet is you think about these niches, uh, and then they become you know five, ten, fifteen billion dollar niches because. Um, you know, when, once you kind of get in there to find it and improve an experience, uh, it, it can explode on you. Um, so there's a company called Goat, and they recently merged with Fight Club. They're effectively a marketplace for new and used sneakers, really kind of um, you know putting out a great buyer experience for that sneaker collector, um, which you could imagine, you know, notify me when you find this item I've been looking for in my size, in this condition. Again, the things that are really important to these folks uh, have a different, differentiated experience. Um, on the show, uh, we've been talking a lot about Real Real recently. Um, that's uh, essentially a marketplace for these kind of higher end items that need a verification step. So if you're going to go and make a, an investment in a $500 Louis Vuitton bag or a certain piece of jewelry, you don't want that to be something that was sold outside the theater dis- district on a on a sidewalk. You want someone that is an expert in you know you know identify you know certifying and verifying that these are real items that are are you know from the manufacturer. Um, so so those are some of the interesting things trends there. Um, another trend we wanted to talk about was. Uh, Marketplace is kind of going offline. So, so uh, there's a couple. We've had beta on the show, so that's a good example of, you know, you could call that a product marketplace, but it's kind of like a real estate marketplace in a way too. So, you know, beta has gone out and and built stores, and they have these brands that are kind of like micro leasing some of the real estate inside of there um, to create this you know really interesting unified experience for people to discover products. What are some of the other up-and-coming physical marketplaces? Yeah, so I think those physical marketplaces are really catching on. Um, there's a Neighborhood Goods, which uh, started out in Dallas, and I think they just did a, a, a reasonable size raise. In my head, I want to say like $10 million. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've announced a few new stores, like there might be one coming to New York right now. Um, there's a store in New York called Showfields uh, that has some like interesting spins on the customer experience they offer for each one. Um, Macy's has a, uh, a separate section of the store they call Macy's marketplace, which is powered by beta. So it uses the beta technology, but it's, it's Macy's property and they essentially lease out space in that. And those are, um, sort of to me, all examples of these emerging physical marketplaces. Yeah, and uh, Alibaba has actually gone on record, and, and that's their biggest strategy for the next five years, as they call it O and O, online and offline. So, so taking 
all these things they learn in the marketplace online where you have infinite shelf and then boiling it back down into a physical type experience. Yeah. And I forgot to mention, um, there's a, one of these, um, physical marketplaces in the mall of America, which I think is called, uh, four corners. And then, uh, McKinsey, the strategic consulting firm just announced they were going to open their own brick and mortar store as a, sort of a living retail lab, uh, also in Mall of America. And my understanding is that is basically a, a, a brick-and-mortar marketplace as well. Yeah, I think we need a road trip to Mall of America. Just, I mean – Just uh, maybe we'll go next July. I don't I don't go to Minnesota past Probably October. smart, and I'm going to have to <laughs> – you're, you may have a tough time adapting to caribou coffee in Minnesota, but we'll get we'll – Okay, get I can make the coffee change. It's the minus 10-degree weather that doesn't sit well with me. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> So, so that's kind of an interesting trend is uh, in the in product marketplaces is kind of going it from online um, into the offline world. Um, a couple other big trends that we're seeing in product marketplaces, uh, I would put into two buckets. Uh, one is friction reduction, and this is kind of in that you know convenience bucket that we talk a lot about. Uh, and then the other one is advertising marketplace hybridization. So, uh, the, these things are blending together. And the side of reduction of friction. Uh, you know, one of the so, – so Facebook has been quite active in the marketplace category, and they've taken a couple runs at this that, that haven't worked. If you remember way, way back, you used to be able to set up your company pages and have a little store and a tab there. And um, we experimented a lot with that with folks, and no one would ever – you know, they could barely find your company page, much less the, the kind of little marketplace tab. Um, and then, um, then Facebook kind of just created what they saw was all these people forming their own little groups. Um, so we have one of these in my neighborhood where it's just kind of a, a Facebook group, and then it, it tends to very quickly have a little kind of product section. So they productized that with something called Facebook Marketplace, which is really more of that Craigslist kind of a vibe. Um, but now they're they're doing a lot of experimentation around that to make it and inviting real sellers in there that are not just kind of you know hey I have a, a used couch for fifty bucks kind of a thing. They're they're putting a you know a, they're kind of tiptoeing into uh, a seller platform, a payments platform, and those kinds of things. Um, and then also, and, 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 you know, also within that world, Instagram has been quite aggressive on this and just rolled out Instagram checkout. And that is, seems to be getting a lot of focus from Facebook and, um, you know, a lot of interesting directions they could take that. So, uh, one interesting direction is if I'm an influencer, could I recommend a certain product and have, you know, almost like an affiliate type relationship there where I promote, you know, I have a picture of this item, um, and you know maybe it's a cool pair of shoes, and the you know it, it, you can buy it directly from the brand, but then I get some kind of a revenue share from from promoting that. So that's going to be really interesting, and and they seem to be putting a lot of a fair amount of effort into the Instagram checkout, and so far um, seems to be going really well. Anything you want to add on the Facebook Instagram side? Uh, no, I mean again, uh, the, uh, I think those are definitely interesting experiments at the moment. Like it, you know, a, a big controversial question is that that model th has worked really well for a long time in China. Um, so far it hasn't had amazing success in the U S so it's, it, uh, I feel like it's interesting to keep watching that and see if it gets customer adoption. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the, there's been way more failures here than, than successes in the U S so, um, Twitter had a, uh, a buy button, um, you know, Facebook had a buy button as well, kind of as part of the ad format. Yeah, I think Pampers had an online store on Facebook in 2007. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, what I would, as a marketplace person, 
what a lot of these marketplace contenders get wrong is the user experience. So, so the Twitter one, for example, you know, uh, and we were we were one of their partners on this. You know, it's pretty easy to put a buy button out there, but it's really hard to kind of answer questions like, well, where's the product detail page live? Um, you know, what what a lot of these people that want to do a quick and dirty marketplace also don't get right is inventory. Um, so, you know, the Twitter answer was, well, people will go buy this stuff and then the retailer can tell them it was out of stock. Well, that's, you know, you do that twice as a consumer and you're like, you know, for, yeah. for, forget the Twitter buy button because, you know, it's totally not helpful. Uh, you know, things like sizes. So, and, you know, then as you get in other categories, categories you get into um, parent-child relationships. So you've got like colors and sizes <laughs> uh, and then you get into fitment. And so, so a lot of, a lot of times people say, you know, this kind of go fast and break stuff, MVP culture uh, creates these really bad user experiences. And I would argue a lot of these guys have not made it into the marketplace world because they, they cut so many corners. It was really bad customer experiences early on. Yeah. And it feels to me like just in general with marketplaces, part of the magic you have to get right is you, you have to make it work for both uh, audiences, the buyers and the sellers. And if you like, you know, some people are really good at uh, appealing to the buyers but they don't offer enough amenities to the sellers or, you know, some people are really good at offering amenities for the sellers, but they're not great at attracting buyers. And it seems like the trick to all successful marketplaces is they're, they're able to grow their value prop on both sides of that marketplace in relative harmony. So they, they don't end up with a ton of buyers and not enough stuff for them to buy. And they don't end up with a ton of inventory and not enough uh, consumers that want that inventory. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, I, you know, as a startup guy, I get approached by a lot of people building marketplaces. And um, the analogy I like to use is it's like uh, rowing a, a canoe or a kayak. Uh, if you if you only row on one side, you're just going to go in these endless circles. And um, <laughs> a marketplace is great when you get it up to scale, but it's really hard to get it up to scale because you're essentially building two businesses. You're building the buyer side and the seller side, and you've got to have enough capital and uh, chutzpah, and then also, you know, there's this balance uh, in the force kind of a thing that you have to do on on both sides of the equation to build the marketplace, right? And most of them do fail because they'll um, they won't raise enough capital. They'll they'll row on one side of the boat and not the other, um, or you know, they they won't nail that that user experience in the middle, or they won't add enough value. A lot of times, you know, just kind of introducing a buyer and a seller isn't enough. You have to really kind of add that that trust factor and, you know, that serendipitous discovery and, and some of those things that are, are really hard to nail hundred uh, percent. Yeah. I was going to say, and I don't know if you'd call these different kinds of marketplaces or not, but two that are coming up a lot in my conversations. So I'm starting to have a lot of uh, what I've been calling B2B marketplaces. And so most often this is uh, a business that usually is the manufacturer of a product that historically did not sell that product to direct mm-hmm. direct uh, to their their in business user that they had a, a an intermediary distribution channel and so as the world has gone from physical to digital and they've stopped taking fax orders um, and moved to a, a website they they still don't want to cut out their distribution channel so the traffic for the product is going to the brand manufacturer, but ultimately the brand manufacturer wants one of their uh, value-added resellers or their distributors or their dealers or whatever their framework is to be the person that sells that product. And so like a marketplace is a perfect solution 
for that. So I'm starting to see a lot of uh, businesses like uh, Hewitt Packard Enterprise where, you know, learn about the servers at HPE.com and then buy the server from a, a, a VAR that's essentially a, a seller on Hewitt Packard's marketplace. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is where we kind of take this marketplace concept and, and most people think of it, you know, should I sell on Amazon or not? It's kind of like their big marketplace question. But if we turn it on, if we turn it 90 degrees, how can you use marketplaces to make your business better? So, so using it as a way to, uh, using a marketplace as a way to, you know, navigate channel um, conflicts is, is one opportunity. Um, another one that we see a lot of, and, and this is kind of what you see with the targets and the Walmarts of the world is, um, you know, exploding out product selection. Um, so let's, let's say um, you and I like to argue about the away suitcases, for example. Yeah. So, so away has built this really great audience of travelers. And if they want to really explode out their SKUs, sure. They can go through the old school way of, of kind of, you know, building a bunch of them themselves. But what if, what if they just want to you know have some recommended products that work well, like maybe um, some Bose headphones or something like that for travelers or a, a neck pillow, um, something that they probably wouldn't build. Um, they could go through that old school way of going and you know sourcing people through EDI and all this stuff, or wouldn't it be more effective to effectively kind of hang a travel marketplace off of their website? So, so another thing that's kind of interesting is, you know, and then, um, and you you don't have to again when it, when you bring that up a lot of people are like oh you know I don't want people to buy toys from my thing you can you can because you can control this you can control the rules of engagement right so even in your B two B example a lot of people will say well I don't want you know seller one and seller two to compete well it's you know that's fine you don't have to you know yeah. there's plenty of marketplaces that that just have one seller and maybe it's by geography whatever the rules of engagement are of your marketplace. You can have there, but you know what what you're doing is you're part of that that ethos of bringing a marketplace is um, you know uh, you know everyone having a great user experience, giving the seller tools to manage things on themselves versus you as a company taking on all the ownership of that management of things. So so it's a much better shared responsibility, and your supplier will be happier when, when they have self-service tools because they can make a bunch of decisions themselves versus you kind of forcing them on them Yeah, within yeah. the rules of engagement. No, I, I, that totally makes sense. The other use case that's come up a lot, I don't know if it's just a, 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 a quirk of timing or if there's a lot of these, these use cases out there, but is a marketplace solving a regulatory problem. And so by that, what I mean is uh, the automotive industry, for example, like in most cases, the manufacturer is not allowed to sell the cars to a consumer. So a manufacturer makes the car, a dealer has to sell the car to a consumer. And so, you know, one of the solutions there is have the manufacturer's website be a marketplace and have the dealers be sellers on that marketplace. And in much the same vein, it's illegal for the the alcohol product creator to sell the alcohol to a consumer. So Drizzly, one of the most popular alcohol delivery services is really just another marketplace. Um, you know, they're, they're not uh, the seller of record selling alcohol and having to deal, navigate all the, the issues with um, alcohol licenses and distributor licenses versus dealer licenses. They're a marketplace and they allow retailers that have a retail distribution alcohol license to sell on their marketplace. Yeah. And you can imagine, you know, um, 
let's use the automobile dealership because it's kind of near and dear to my heart. Yeah. Um, I'm tying all your things together. <laughs> you know, you, you could imagine, well, who gets the lead? Well, um, let's say you're in, you know, like, like our region of Raleigh-Durham, there's like four Toyota dealers within like a tight area. Yeah. Well, now, uh, now you can use those rules of engagement to create the right behaviors. So you can say who gets the highest scores on their, um, their service department, whose sales reps get the highest NPS scores. And you can kind of change the you know, the flow of leads or, or, or sales into the, the dealerships based on these kinds of rules of engagement and drive the behaviors you want. So um, you know, maybe you have a bunch of dealers saying they have vehicles in stock and they don't. So, so there's a whole out-of-stock, in-of-stock thing. A lot of the same kind of things we, we see in the product world. I guess cars are product, but in the you know in the widget world could be applied to the vehicle thing, or or you know or, or even the alcohol. Which alcohol store gets the order could be based on, you know, how up to date are you on this? Then you can start to create all these interesting new monetization mechanisms. You know, like uh, you know the dealers. Maybe there's some ad platform you could layer in there. So that, that's another one of the things we're going to talk about in a second. Is is there's this interesting way to layer in um, advertising into marketplaces and and have a whole another layer of of you know um, self management and letting giving the the marketplace sellers participants tools to let them hash it out and figure out what the right thing is for the consumers. Interesting. Yep. So then, um, yep. So the two biggest trends in marketplaces that we're seeing kind of here around 2019, I talked about the reduction of friction. So, so we're seeing, um, people trying to do that in social. Um, and a lot of times what we're doing is we're, we're bringing the transaction up a click, right? So, uh, let's use Instagram as an example. So you see this exciting new, uh, shoe on Instagram. Now you go to some, some shoe site, uh, and then you have to log in, create a thing, you know, all that stuff, and then re-enter all your payment details. So by by pulling it up um, and getting getting a bunch of clicks, it's going to make it better for everybody. That's what everyone's kind of going for, the holy grail. And as you mentioned, it's worked in China but not in the U.S. yet. Um, within that vein, Google has been chewing away at this for a long time, and they're on kind of version four or five of this. Uh, the latest iteration is Google Shopping Actions. And that's where you do a search for something, and you'll see this little icon and that effectively you can buy now right from the Google ad on your mobile device. Uh, I believe this is Android only right now. Um, uh, but we're, you know, uh, again, full disclosure, Channel Advisors are partnering this, and I think we're seeing some really good traction from folks that are in this program because you could imagine, you know, you go from a, uh, you know, all right, I did an ad, I got a click, then I had to have a convert and, and all that good stuff, to now I had an ad and I got a convert. So you take all these steps out of there, um, it's going to be better. Um, just know. less friction between the purchase intent and the purchase. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, what's interesting is the travel industry is ahead of us in the e-commerce world. Um, so Google travel has, you can buy a ton of stuff right from Google travel. And I think they're taking a bunch of the learnings they've gotten there, um, where that's on like a version six O and they're bringing it over into the product world. So, so I think, you know, with all the Google smarts going on and they seem pretty committed to this, uh, uh you know, all, all the way up the company. So so that's a, one to keep an eye on. Um, and it wouldn't be adjacent to Scott show if we didn't talk more about Amazon. So in April this year, Amazon announced one-day Prime. So you know, just when everyone thought that they could kind of catch up to two-day Prime, now there's one-day Prime. And you know, uh, I've seen data that shows increasingly that they since April, they've really been dramatically delivering on this and ramping up their delivery program kind of in, in front of holiday. So, so you know, something like, 
about half of the products now, Prime eligible products, are also eligible for one day Prime. So, so I think by holiday next year, we'll have you know almost all Prime deliveries will be one day, um, except for certain regions like I don't know Wyoming or something like that. Um, the other big trend in marketplaces is this ad uh, marketplace hybridization, uh, and Alibaba was way out in front of this. So. Uh, so Taobao, for example, almost all the revenue on Taobao comes from ads because that's a person-to-person marketplace and they're not collecting a take rate. Um, it really is is they make all the money from ads. So they took that same ad platform and put it in Tmall, and about half the revenue in Tmall is from a transaction fee and the other ha- half is from an ad. Now what you have to do is you have to, what you have to be careful is just when you throw ads in there, it can introduce spam, right? Because a lot of times the person that can spend the most on an ad – actually may have the worst product offer for consumers because they've got the most margin to spend on a spammy ad. <laughs> um, Amazon's very clever way around this is you have to own the buy box, which means you've got a great value. Then you can do an ad. Um, so then, you know, as we've talked, uh, the, the Amazon ad uh, functionality has ex- exploded uh, both for vendor central and seller central. Um, and overwhelmingly a large percentage of the pixels on the screen are sponsored or advertising. So that that's been a huge trend. And uh, now we've seen Walmart uh, replicate that. And I think you're going to see a lot of other people look at this marriage of ads and marketplaces. It makes it hard as a vendor um, in this uh, world, be it one P or three P or even hybrid, because now you've got all these, it just gives you this whole nother set of levers. Should I reduce the price on my product a nickel or should I spend more on advertising? Is it really, um, you know, how much of it's accretive, like uh, a truly additional and how much of it isn't? Um, so the, you know, there's still a lot of thinking going on around there. And I'm sure you guys uh, think a lot about that as well. Um, so, and then also you, it, it kind of brings crashing into the world, all the agency guys now and, you know, the product guys are like, Hey, what are you guys doing here? Go do some TV ads or whatever it is you guys do. So, so it's really interesting that, that, that intersection is causing a lot of friction and, and, you know, a lot of resetting in many marketplace examples back to, you know, thinking, well, I thought I knew what ROI was on this marketplace. Let me rethink that and figure out how, how do I leverage this advertising piece and how do I think about the ROI on that? Um, I always keep an eye outside the world of products on marketplaces to see what's going on. There's a lot of really interesting things there going, going down. Um, one of the biggest ones is, you know, uh, for a long time, investors loved these kind of zero asset marketplaces. So, so eBay is a zero asset marketplace. Uh, it's a bunch of people in San Jose just kind of guiding the marketplace and all the buyers and sellers, um, you know, don't get involved with the company. Um, Amazon is more full stack because they do get involved. They have the one P part and they get involved in the shipping. Um, the, uh, that's a big trend. So as companies have started to try to have a better customer experience, um, they are, they're going deeper. Uh, the classic example you read a lot about is in the real estate industry. So in the early days you had Zillow and Trulia, those two companies, um, uh, merged, uh, and, uh, you know, they would essentially, they're kind of a lead marketplace for realtors. Uh, then a company kind of came out and said, you know, if we, if we did really good data analytics and we just bought the houses for kind of 10 to 20% below market, um, and then flipped them very quickly, um, we could have a much higher take rate. So the average take rate in a real estate marketplace is like 10%. Um, but these guys have like a 30, 40%, uh, take rate. Now the, the, that's one. That's kind of the the bullish example. The bearish or negative example would be 
wow, you're really loading up on a lot of real estate. If there's a recession, you know, who's going to be the last person kind of in the musical chairs there? So, so the, it remains to be seen um, what's going on there. WeWork gets pulled into this because they're, they're effectively kind of you know creating a marketplace where they go and take long-term leases and then they're kind of a real estate marketplace inside of that lease. Um, Airbnb is a great marketplace for um, you know vacations and where you want to stay. They're going wide, so they're starting to put together unique experiences that kind of say – all right, uh, you know, you you want to have a fun family outing, we're going to put you in a treehouse. And along with that, we're going to do horse riding and 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 that kind of thing. Um, the last one I'll, I'll point out is, um, and this is where Uber and Lyft are doing some interesting things. And this is anchoring around the customer. And they're saying, my customer wants transportation. And they came to me for cars. What other transportation can I give them? So it's uh, this is called multimodal in the transportation world. So they'll say, all right, Jason, you want to get from this location in Chicago um, to a location in New York. Uh, you're going to scooter from here to the sub to the, what do you guys call it, the L um, here in Chicago. And that's going to take you to the airport. And then that's going to take you to New York. And then we're going to have a, a lift pick you up and take you from point A to point B. Um, and then maybe in there you'll you'll ride, you know, a, other mix mixes of transportation. So so taking the consumer and trying to grab more of their journey is a really interesting kind of thing. And in that world, you call it multimodality. Um, so it's kind of fun to think through what else could we do in the product world for people around this stuff? You know, if are there signals that we get from these products where we could tie in, you know, maybe a trip somewhere or travel or who knows uh, what else we could tie in there? Even just like the installation services and stuff that you see marketplaces like Amazon start to bundle with sales feels like a, a permeation of that. Yeah. And then um, the last one, if you if you are interested in learning more, um, there's a lot more material out there about marketplaces. When uh, I remember it was kind of lonely in 2001, uh, being the guy screaming at the top of <laughs> about marketplaces. Uh, uh, but now the good news is uh, there's a lot more content out there. Um, one of the best ones is um, there, there's a lot of VCs that, that are really almost kind of focus to the exclusivity on marketplaces. Um, one of the biggest ones that, that loves marketplaces is Andreessen Horowitz. Um, so that's Mark Andreessen, founder of Mozilla um, and uh, Firefox. Netscape. Uh, no, Netscape, yep. Uh, and then uh, his partner, Ben Horowitz, uh, it's kind of a funny thing. Um, you you – you know, so the word internationalization has what like eighteen characters, so it's I eighteen N. So they use that same slang. Andreessen Horowitz. There's sixteen characters, so I think it's A sixteen Z. So if you go to A sixteen Z, they have a lot of really good content around marketplaces. The the two folks that really publish a lot there are Jeff Jordan, and he was the CEO of eBay and PayPal for a while, um, and then he focuses a lot on marketplaces. Uh, and then they just recently brought in a guy, Andrew Chen, and he does a really good job of pontiff. He's from Uber, um, and on their growth team. So um, so a lot of really good content there. And when you go, you may say, Scott's crazy. Why would I think about this? But you have to kind of connect the dots and think, all right, I have a certain business problem. In your B2B example is a good one. Could I use a marketplace here in a different way than I'm thinking about marketplaces, which is the normal, should I sell on eBay or Amazon? Um, so a lot of interesting, some of this content is how do you solve that two-sided problem of building two things? Um, you know, how do how do you fake demand on one side? How do you fake supply on the other? There's a lot of really interesting case studies now and content out there. So um, we'll we'll link to their uh, their pod their uh, blog uh, landing page, uh, and then they also have some good Twitter feeds that we'll link to in the show notes. 
Um, so we're getting tight on time. So uh, hopefully that gives you a good feeling for marketplaces and some of the different flavors out there and what's going on in the product marketplace world. Um, some action items. So, so you know, uh, if, if you really uh, – oh, one thing I wanted to uh, – one last trend I wanted to talk about is uh, – this is kind of in that category of – things becoming marketplaces you wouldn't think. Uh, this is maybe even a little bit of an early prediction for, for our prediction show. Um, Shopify is an e-commerce platform for SMBs, and they just recently announced that they're building their own FBA-like shipping capability. Well, you know, the one thing Shopify lacks to be a marketplace is a unified door for people to come in and say, I want to shop amongst all the Shopify merchants. So, so for me, that's a really interesting one where, you know, I, I think we're going to see these – Things become marketplaces you would have never guessed. Um, so once Shopify does, does it, then why wouldn't Salesforce, you know, all the platform companies, you know, having this kind of interesting, interesting way of taking on Amazon by having a unique here, shop amongst my merchants kind of a capability? I think we're going to see a lot of you know, innovation in the next five years around that. Hmm. All right, action items. Uh, so thanks for making it this far. So you know. I'm a big believer that you have to really embrace these marketplaces. They're not for everybody. Um, but in the, in the kind of the obvious use case, figuring out uh, how to sell on them, should you sell on them? Um, if you're, if you're not going to, you're going to miss kind of half the opportunity out there. Um, another one is everyone is very siloed and they think about advertising in one bucket and then where to sell your products in another. Those worlds are colliding. You need to have kind of that capability integrated on your side. Uh, the you know the table stakes of convenience of getting your products out there uh, are, are very high, so you need to be able to partner uh, with someone to, to help you with those delivery times. The good news is because Amazon's raised the bar, uh, a lot of people I've talked to said, "Well, I went to a 3PL and you know it was like five days and three times as expensive." Um, a lot of that's reconciling itself because the whole logistics world's having to keep up with Amazon. So there's more and more partners out there that can do this. I mentioned Shopify's own network, um, uh, FedEx, UPS. All these guys now have programs that are very Amazon FBA esque, not only in their cost but in their service levels. Um. You know, you, you can't say enough about data quality. Um, we we uh, we were just talking about personalization earlier, and and you know, the the Venn diagram of data quality overlaps for pretty much everything: on-site merchandising. Uh, you know, that it's the one topic you see people don't invest enough in product data. So so that's one of those things you get kind of a ten x win when you invest in really rich product data. The same is true for marketplaces because you're going to want to go sell on Amazon or build your own marketplace, and, and you're not going to have the right taxonomy and way to do this. Uh, this is a whole new way of thinking about things. So there's a whole new set of measuring and KPIs to develop there. Uh, and then uh, the last one we talked a little bit about this is consider applying a marketplace to a part of your business that that's not maybe immediately obvious. Uh, could it be an offline thing that you do? Could it be a way of dealing with suppliers in a much more efficient self-service type way that's more scalable uh, and then has some you know, uh, all, you know add-on benefits that, that you wouldn't get if you just kind of did it the old school way? Should you have your own third-party marketplace? Uh, there's a variety of vendors out there now that will help you set up a marketplace so they can plug into most of the platforms. Uh, the one we've talked about on the show before is Miracle. They just raised a pretty sizable round. I think it was 60 or $80 million. Um, you were mentioning there's a couple other vendors out there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Miracle is, I think of as sort of the original enterprise class solution. Um, and it's it's spelled peculiarly for listeners that haven't heard it before. It's M I R. 
A-K-L, which I'm sure they thought was cute, but it's kind of a They're French. Yeah. Um, yeah, and in fact, it was the French version of Best Buy, Fnac, that uh, these guys wrote an internal marketplace software for. <clears throat> and they thought, oh, my God, like, other people need this besides Fnac. We should turn this into a product and sell it to others. So that's how Miracle was born from from uh, Fnac. Um, but there, uh, uh, we have not seen a platform have native marketplace functionality yet, which is interesting. Like you, you might expect that to come. But we have uh, Miracle has gotten enough traction, and with the fundraising, we've seen a number of newer competitors em- emerge that can be sort of a plug-in marketplace like Miracle, and so. Um, one that I've seen in the U.S. a lot recently is one called Marketplacer, um, which I, my understanding is uh, started out as a European provider. Um, and then there are some smaller ones that I personally know less about, um, but I do see in the marketplace. Um, there's one called Near Me. Uh, there's one called Iceberg. Um, there, uh, and then one I've seen a number of times is called uh, Arcadia. And some of these are fully productized solutions. Some of these are uh, code bases that you can use to add to sort of self-maintained platforms like Magento. Um, and a few of them, I think, are even plugins that are available in the Shopify app store. So you can kind of pretty easily add them to your to your uh, existing Shopify installation. Uh, and then Coco Rico is the funnest one to say. Oh, yeah. Coco yeah. Rico. I don't know what that is, but I like to say it. I don't either, but it's a, a it is another one of these like uh, startup software service marketplaces. So okay, awesome. Did you have any other action items for folks on marketplaces that you've seen out there? Uh, no, I do. I think your advice not to overlook um, the customer experience elements. That it's not just about uh, the the offer and the customer. I think uh, is very relevant because I feel like a lot of the the marketplaces that we've seen not succeed and not every marketplace in the U S has succeeded. Uh, it, it feels like it often comes down to that customer experience execution. Um, and so I, I, uh, I certainly, um, sort of agree with, with that point, but, uh, yeah, that sounds like a great list of action items. Yeah. And with that, we are, we hope you've enjoyed this deep dive on marketplaces. Yeah, and as always, uh, if you have further questions, especially hard questions for Scott, then I highly encourage you to visit us on our Facebook page or hit us up on Twitter, and we'll try to stump Scott on the marketplace questions. Um, If you have any easy questions, I'd be happy to weigh in on them as well. Um, And of course, if this show added value, we sure would appreciate it if you'd get on uh, iTunes and give us that five-star review, Uh, iTunes being another example of a marketplace. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 